0: Thank you, Mike. Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and be turning there. Our text is going to begin in verse eighteen, and uh, we're actually going to, I guess, break, break. Uh, I'm going to break my commitment to you. I told you I was going to give you, give you a series from Colossians three. We're going to read one verse out of chapter four. Okay, it, it won't make it that much longer. Um, I don't think so it's it begins in verse 18 and we will go to chapter 4 verse 1 and then I promise you that's the cutoff that's it so Colossians chapter 3 and we'll begin in in verse 18 Uh, my title tonight is Christ and our home life Christ and our home life the Bible says wives Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh." Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. The word of God. Let's pray. Father, our prayer tonight to you is that you would use your word to show us where we need to obey you. Not just so that we would obey, but so we could be transformed to be more like your son. Then we ask, Lord, that you would give us the faith and and the trust to obey what you have called us to. We ask for your help tonight as we sit under your scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you in the room tonight are familiar with the study of proxemics? The study of proxemics. Anybody? This is going to be really exciting, you can already tell. I just see the excitement on everybody's faces. So uh, proxemics is the study. It, it's, it's the study of how humans use space. Does it sound familiar yet? Uh, In proxemics, there are different terms to describe how close someone is standing to you. Now, I know you can't read the descriptions on there, so I'm going to read them for you. Twelve feet and more is considered public space. Okay? Twelve feet and more is is public space. Uh, Four to twelve feet is social space. This sermon is really taking off, I can tell. It gets interesting, I promise. Less than four feet is considered personal space. I'm ringing a bell now. You've heard of personal space. Less than two feet, two feet to zero in the circle, or one and a half, is called intimate space. Now there's a real interesting technical term um, for when someone crosses from one zone into another when we don't want them to. The term is discomfort. Has anyone that you know has anyone ever came into your personal space when they were supposed to be in your social space, or maybe worse? Has anyone that you have wanted in the public space crossed all the way into your intimate space and wanted to have a conversation with you, right? Has that happened? I'm not the only one, okay. Why do I bring this up? Beside the fact that this is just fascinating and circles always get everybody's attention. Well, I think this is what Jesus is doing with the Colossians in the final uh, unit of chapter 3, Paul has told the Colossians that, that they needed to remember their identity in Christ. They needed to remember that they are living a resurrected kind of life. And he's told them that this involves a lot of things. As, as individuals, they get up every day and they go to war with their old life life. Ways their old life clothing that they're putting off, and they're also supposed to be putting on the new life clothing, which is the character of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Paul doesn't just address them as individuals. So, so these, these requirements can't stay vague or nebulous. They're also part of a church. And that's what we learned in, in verses 15 To seventeen, That the Christ-centered life doesn't just affect me and it doesn't just affect you as an individual, but as part of a church. So we're not just supposed to be a loving person, but you need to show love to your brothers and sisters in Christ in real tangible ways. And we talked about how we build each other up with the word. As we uh, have the word indwell us, we're able to give it to others and we sing. And by singing, we help each other and we teach and we warn each other. But, but, but Paul does something really interesting in verse 18. He's been talking about putting off ungodliness and putting on godliness and, and how to act when you come to church. And up to a point, I mean, all of that is pretty comfortable for Christians. And then all of a sudden in verse 18, Jesus gets in their personal space. And he starts saying things through Paul like, wives, submit to your husbands. I imagine that in the little church in Colossae, whatever, wherever they were meeting, as the reader of the letter got to what we would call verse 18, that the room just got a little bit tense. Because as Christians, we know how we're supposed to act in church, right? We know how to sing the songs and how to pray, how to treat other people when we meet them in the church building. But but Jesus is invading their personal space. You see, we are called to live under the lordship of Jesus. We're called to have a life centered around Jesus in our most intimate and personal relationships because the Christ-centered life must be lived out particularly, not just in the church, but in the home. Being a Christian means... That your most personal, intimate relationships are to be transformed by the good news that you are in Jesus. That you're called to live a resurrected life. Not just in front of the deacons and not just in front of your connection group and not just in front of your pastor. But with your wives, your husbands, your children, and even in your vocation. We could kind of look at it like this. Paul explores uh, three relationships in this light. The, the wives and husbands, the children and parents, and then the servants and masters. Marriage, parenting, and vocation. Now, there's a couple things I think we should notice up front before we get into the particulars. First of all, notice who is addressed. For, for them, this would have been a little bit surprising. Because in the ancient world, there were lots of household codes, okay? And in, in the Roman, uh, for, for, for people living in the Roman Empire, household code was this. It was a list of instructions for men that, that told them how to keep all of their property under control. And their property meant their slaves, their children, and their wives, Paul doesn't just address the men in his household code. You've read this a hundred times. So for us, this is kind of old news. But they start hearing this household code being read for Christians. And it's not just the men that are addressed. The wives are also addressed as, as persons who make choices, who are ethically responsible people. And it's not just the wives that are addressed. Even the children are given commands. And the masters are told to treat their slaves with dignity, and even slaves are addressed as if they're persons, because for for Christians, they they were persons. Paul addresses everyone. Not only does he address everyone, but notice the order. Wives are addressed before husbands. Husbands. Women were ignored and looked down upon in the ancient world, but Paul addresses them first. Then notice that children are addressed before fathers and slaves are addressed before masters. This is very upside down, isn't it? But if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you know the whole Christian life is upside down. That being in the kingdom of Jesus and knowing Jesus means your values and your priorities and how you see things are totally different than how a fallen world sees them. So Paul addresses everyone that would have been in the household. Notice also there's a recurring theme. Okay, I'm sure you picked up on it. Verse 18. As it is fit in the Lord. That's not the only one. Verse 20. This is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Verse 22. Fearing God. Verse 23, as to the Lord. Are you catching on to something here? Verse 24, of the Lord ye shall receive. Ye serve the Lord Christ. And then chapter 4, ye also have a master in heaven. Now, we have to look at all of that. It's just overwhelming. We've read so few verses. And Jesus is brought into this so many times. That here's what I, I want to hopefully head off at the past. If you come to this text or if you listen to this sermon thinking you want some sort of spiritual life hacks. You, you want to have a better marriage or you want to have better kids or you want to do better at your job. Listen, you're totally missing the point. That's not what this text is about. Now, if we take scripture seriously... A lot of us will have better marriages and we will have better relationships with our children and we will have a better relationship with our employees or with our employers. But this isn't spiritual life hacking. These aren't hot tips to make your life better or more comfortable. Paul's concern and the Colossians concern ought to be this. We want to know how to live in the Lord. We want to know how to live a life that's all about Jesus That's Christ-centered. Now, if we do that, it will change those relationships. But we're not coming to this. We're not meant to come to this text. I think Paul is making that very clear. We're not meant to come to this text for ourselves, for selfish ends. We're coming to this text asking, how can I live a life that's about Jesus? That's how this is meant to be read. And it's only in reading it that way that we'll even be able to follow what it tells us to do. This life is all about living in the Lord. So as we look at this passage, there are three areas of life or three relationships that Paul deals with. Now, the first one is the relationship between wives and their husbands. Wives and their husbands, the marriage relationship. And here's the first instruction. I know this is what all the women wanted to hear coming to a midweek service. The first instruction is this. Wives, submit to your husbands. We need to to think about submission. First of all, we need to admit that the Bible does teach this and not ignore it or pass over it or try to reframe it. But second of all, we need to think about submission in light of what the rest of the New Testament says about submission. And we're not going to read them all, but there are several commands in the New Testament about believers submitting to each other. Even about wives and husbands submitting to each other. You could go to Ephesians 5, uh, verse 20. So, uh, here's something we have to understand from the very beginning. Submission does not imply inferiority. Amen. Uh, submission is not seeing yourself as some sort of doormat to be stepped on by others. Paul has written elsewhere that males and females in God's sight are equal. He says so explicitly in his letter to the Galatians. Submission, of course, also doesn't mean blind obedience that would lead to sin. Paul's not teaching that if these wives have a, have a husband that tells them to go do pagan sacrifices or to go kill someone that they should obey. Now, this is the kind of submission that's fitting in the Lord. Christian submission. And of course, we also see it doesn't mean blind obedience because Paul is addressing them as, Paul addresses women and gives them a command. They have the responsibility to make choices and live for the Lord. They're, they're people. So if submission isn't those things, then what is it? Submission is, is this. It's a cooperative demeanor that puts others first. It's not, it's not being a doormat. It's not, not having a will of your own or having a mind of your own, but it's cooperating to put others first. The the command involves this. N.T. Wright puts it this way. By submitting to her husband, the Christian wife must forego the temptation to rule her husband's life. And this applies to Christian wives today. If you're married, God is calling you to cooperate with your husband's leadership. Not to be stepped on by him, not to be hurt by him or abused in any way, but you're called to cooperate. You're called to to, uh, forego this temptation to try to run or dictate his life. That's what God calls you to do. How how exactly can you do this? Well, you you can encourage him, encourage his strengths. Probably one of the most important ways, especially in the context of this passage, that, that you can su- submit to your husband is by supporting his momentum in the spiritual leadership of his family. And I'm just going to get very practical. This is really a super practical message because it's a very practical text, okay? Um, if your husband has any inclination to pray with you or pray with the kids, support that. Remind him of it. Get behind that. That's a great uh, kind of spiritual momentum that you can get behind and lift up and support. If he wants to be more faithful in attending church or, or maybe more faithful in what he allows uh, the, the kids to do in the activities of the church, get behind it, support it, encourage it. That's how you, that's one way that you can submit to him, cooperate with his leadership. But we should notice that this is a one-sided command. Husbands aren't off the hook. Uh, the wives need to be Christ-centered in how they submit. And, and by the way, we have an example here because no one submitted like Jesus submitted. Now, we get a great picture of this in 1 Peter 5 and in Philippians 2. Uh, Jesus was the the ultimate example. And this is why, by the way, this is fitting in the Lord to submit. This isn't an arbitrary command. This isn't an outdated Victorian ethic. No, submission from the wife means you are imitating Jesus in how he saved us. Uh, Jesus, and I think Philippians 2 probably brings this up just the best. Jesus put others first And cooperated with his father's will like no one ever has. Jesus sacrificed more to submit to his father's plan than you will have to sacrifice to submit to your husband's plan. Jesus put others first in his submission more than God will ever ask you to put others first. And here's the cool thing about submission. This isn't just living out some old-fashioned command. Uh, Women, when you properly submit to your godly husband's leadership, you are reliving and giving an image of and a picture of the gospel. You're imitating the gospel. First, uh, Peter brings that out when he points to the ultimate example for, for wives and their submission as being Jesus and what he did on the cross. It's a living picture of what he did to save us. That's why it's fitting in the Lord of all people. Because of what he did for you. And similarly for husbands, which by the way, this is also fitting in the Lord. Husbands are called to love their wives. You have a Christ-centered marriage not just when the, 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 the wife uh, submits to her husband's leadership and puts, him, puts others first and, uh, for, for, uh, to, to imitate Christ, to be Christ-centered, but you have a Christ-centered marriage when then the husband in turn loves his wife like Jesus loves us. When he shows the kind of love that he learns from his sa- Savior. Husbands are not off the hook. There's two things that that Paul instructs us on in particular. First of all, be loving. This is how you treat them. And then number two, don't be bitter. Don't be resentful toward them. Now, this is interesting to me because if you remember a couple of weeks ago, back in verse 14, Paul has already addressed love. You remember when we talked about putting on the new life clothing? putting on the character of Jesus, that belt, that thing that that bound everything together, the, the virtue that wraps up all the other virtues for the Christian is love, charity. Paul has already made it very clear that everyone in the church at Colossae, and by extension, every Christian is called to love. So why does Paul have to tell husbands to love when a few verses earlier he already told them to love? It's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. The reason Paul has to remind these believers in the church of Colossae to love their wives after just telling them all of their virtues should be wrapped up in love is because it is possible for men. It is possible for men because of our fallenness and because of our sinful nature to show love easier to other people So that your business associates feel loved and appreciated by you, your church family feels loved by you, your friends feel loved by you. It's possible to do that and to not show love to the person you're closest with, your wife. If that wasn't possible, there would be no need for this command. (laughs) But we need this verse. Because it is possible for us men to be loving to everyone else except our wife. Why is that? Maybe it is because since we're in this covenant relationship, we know that there's this expectation that whatever we do and however we fail, we expect them to stick with us. And we don't have that same covenant relationship with other people, right? If we're really hateful or arrogant or rude toward our friends, we know they may not be our friends tomorrow. We just assume we'll always have our wife and we can be so transparent and open with her that our our weaknesses kind of rise to the surface. And though she should be the one that deserves the most love from us, there can be times where she gets the least love. That's just the way it is. So God calls you men not just to be loving, but specifically, specifically to love your wife. Like Jesus loves us and don't just love. Love them without bitterness. Love them without resentment. It's, it's possible that you can get up tomorrow morning and try to start a new pattern of showing love to your wife, but internally you resent them for who, you, for who they are, that internally you're bitter against them for how they don't meet your expectations or they don't do everything you want them to do. And, and listen... No matter how much you show that outward love and try to fix your marriage like that, if you still have internal resentment, you're not doing what Jesus is calling you to do. It's not enough if your wife feels loved, if internally you're bitter about her. Because when Jesus loves us, he's not doing an outward show to cover up inward resentment. No, when Jesus shows love to his children, he means it. And men, when you show love to your wife, you are called to mean it. Treat them with love, feel toward them with no bitterness. Why should we submit and love? Because it is fitting in the Lord. So as, as husbands that are believers in Jesus, you need to understand that, your, that, that, that the full measure of your Christian maturity is not what other people in the church think about you. How our church family uh, feels about us and how they see our character and how they see our growth in the Lord, that is important. Verses 15 to 17 make that clear. But it's not enough, men, that your church family thinks you are a spiritually mature Christian. Your wife needs to be loved without bitterness. If you're going to grow in the character of Jesus, if your life is going to be Christ-centered. That's why you need to assess where you're at. You can start with asking her if she feels loved. And when it comes to your bitterness, you may have to ask the Lord about that. Why should we submit and why should we love? Because it's fitting in the Lord. There's a second relationship here. That's the relationship between children and their parents. The instruction to children is fairly straightforward. Children, obey your parents. And how, how far does that go? What's the extent in all things? That kind of says it all, doesn't it? So kids, if, uh, the ones that are here, and maybe uh, teenagers, if you're listening on Thursday afternoon because your parents told you to download this message, If you want to do big things for God, start with what he has already asked you to do. Hey, it's great that at camp you surrendered to be a missionary to Africa. And it's, it's great that everyone in, in, your, in your youth group or maybe your circle of friends thinks that you're spiritually mature. But when your parents ask you to do something, do they expect obedience? Or do they hope for obedience? If you want to be like Jesus and you're a young person, there's no better way to be like Jesus Than by obeying your parents. Before Jesus started teaching. Before he started doing miracles. He stayed at home. He worked hard. And he did what his mom and dad told him to do. You say well that's really simple. Well yeah it's simple. But that's what God is asking of you. Obey your parents. This is how you're the most like Jesus. When obedience to your Christian mom and dad. Is expected. And they're not surprised by it. Second, the instruction to fathers. The instruction to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke anger in your kids. I think we could even extend this to to mothers as well because, uh, you know, mothers are part of the parenting process in the home. And while they may follow follow the father's uh, vision and leadership, they still interact with the kids a lot. Don't provoke them to anger. This has a lot of implications. (laughs) Um, Sometimes when our kids misbehave uh, and we explain it to other people, and I have done this, our explanation for why they're misbehaving so bad, our explanation for why they're always angry at us or maybe why they're acting rebellious, often our explanation goes to them, right? Well, they're going through the terrible twos, or the terrible threes, or the terrible fours, or you can just, you know, there's a terrible for every stage of life, I think. This is just the stage they're going through. They had too much sugar last night. They didn't get up on time. They didn't go to bed on time. Their friends are a bad influence. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to say something the text isn't saying, okay? The Bible does not say that when your children are angry at you, that it's always your fault. I mean, if you tell them to not play in the road and they get angry, you shouldn't say, well, I need to be a good dad, go play in the road. No, don't do that. Please don't do that. Sometimes you're, our kids get angry because they're sinful, right? And then there's even other, other explanations. Sometimes this is a very r- real issue. Kids could get angry or emotional, emotionally out of control because of physical or physiological problems, chemical imbalances. I want to allow for that. But But here's the thing. If this text means anything, it means this. Some of our children's emotional problems can be attributed to how we parent. If God tells us fathers to not provoke our kids to anger, that means it is possible we can do something that does provoke them to anger. That it can actually, at the end of the day, be our fault. There's a couple ways. Uh, there's probably a lot of ways to do this. I thought of two in particular, kind of on a spectrum. One of the ways we can provoke our kids to anger is is by overreacting to them when they do something wrong, or maybe often something. It's maybe it's something we don't like, something that embarrasses us, and we can be harsh. And we may think the louder I am and, and the, the harsher I am and the more uh, painful. That, that my rebuke of them, the more painful that, that comes across, then they're, they're going to respect me more. But, but there's kind of a law of diminishing returns when you try to, to correct your children by just giving them outrage. Eventually, that's going to sour how they view you, and eventually you'll lose respect in their eyes. There's another way that we can provoke our children to anger. And it's kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. See, we can, it can be overreaction or harshness, but another way that we can provoke them to anger is by our absence. Now, you may think, well, I don't think this is going to be a problem for me. I don't provoke my kids to anger and I don't overreact. I don't, I don't get onto them with too much passion because I just kind of avoid them. These are the hours I work. Whenever I'm home, they're asleep. I don't really spend any time with them. So this is not going to be a problem for me. But listen, your absence in the long run will lead to just as much frustration and even anger and resentment as an overbearing presence. And it may not be that you're not like physically coming into the house. You can be in proximity to your children and not be present with them. And kids pick up on this super quick. I mean, they know the difference between the, uh, the adults that are just talking to them and the adults that like really care and are invested in listening to them. They know that. It's super easy for them to tell. So it's not just being overreacting and harsh and overbearing on your kids that can provoke anger, but it's also being absent or not being present to them when you are with them. This really all comes back to Jesus again, doesn't it? Jesus was not only uh, perfect in his obedience to his parents, but did anyone in the Gospels quite, did anyone treat children quite like Jesus did? We have the the contrast between how the disciples thought about children. They saw them as an obstacle, as a problem, as a a difficulty to really doing God's kingdom work. And Jesus didn't just say, no, they're not an obstacle or no, they're not a problem. Jesus said, children are the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God consists in. The disciples were in proximity to all these kids. Jesus was present to them. And I think there was a reason the kids were running up to Jesus and not the disciples. Jesus never did anything to to justly provoke children to anger. We just see him loving and welcoming. And and parents, especially fathers, that's the pattern for us. That's the pattern for us. This is what pleases the Lord in our parent-child relationship. Kids, obey your parents like Jesus. And parents, be obeyable like Jesus. The third relationship is servants and masters. When Jesus comes into our personal space, he not only calls us to put our marriage and our parenting under his lordship as if that wasn't enough, but even our vocation. How we think about our work. He specifically has commands for masters and servants or slaves. Now, this really covers everything. Because no one in the ancient world had less dignity than slaves. You could not be more at the bottom of the rung of society than if you were a servant or a slave. And and by contrast, no one had more power to demean or to take dignity from others than a slave master. Jesus addresses them both and tells them how to think about their work. And Paul includes both of them in his instruction. In verses 22 and 23, slaves are told to obey their masters, not only doing their work, but doing it with sincerity. This is, this is, these were not cool jobs. Slaves didn't get the cool jobs, Right? They did the stuff no one else wanted to do. Because if somebody else wanted to do it, the slaves wouldn't be doing it. They did the kind of things that people avoided. The leftover work to make civilization keep going. But Paul says there's a way for them to do this with sincerity. If you're a slave, how do you do your work with sincerity? How do you mean it? How do you actually care about your job? I mean, there's all, reason, all kinds of reasons people today lose passion about their job. They changed your benefits, or they like, moved the water cooler, or they don't give you free coffee anymore. How could slaves take their job seriously and care about it when the, their whole world treats them like pieces of property? Because these are just their earthly masters. Their work to their earthly masters, is that doesn't give the full picture. They also have another master. They may have someone in their life and in their job who is acting like a lord, but they ultimately serve another lord. They may be at the bottom, uh, the very bottom of the rung of society in their kingdom, but they're part of another kingdom. They have another motivation that people on the outside won't see. Another purpose for their work. In verse twenty-four, it's, it, Paul explains that even though they have menial labor in this life, even though servants are ignored and despised and looked down on this life, they have an inheritance coming. And, and the word inheritance doesn't, isn't just a fancy way of saying wages or or a, a paycheck. It literally means an inheritance. They're heirs to property and possessions. They're heirs of a kingdom. No one on the outside looking in would see them as heirs, but they're doing their work knowing I'm working toward an inheritance. I'm an heir with the Son of God. And I get to come to this awful, terrible job in the first century Roman world, and I get to work and show other people how he has transformed my life. I get to make much of Jesus, who will one day give me an inheritance that that would blow the minds of my wealthiest owners. These men and women had nothing. To, their, to the people who knew them, they were nothing. But to Jesus, they are heirs. And the same, by the way, applies to you and I. Whatever you think about your current job, whatever you think about your training and your qualifications and, and how much you make and how successful you've been, uh, listen, uh, at the end of the day, no matter how bad your job is, and I hope you don't have a bad job, But even if you do have a bad job or even if you have a job that you think doesn't make that much of a difference, maybe a job that society ignores or they don't think it's that important. Listen, whatever your job is, no matter how disappointed you are in it, at the end of the day, you have a chance to make much of Jesus. You have a chance to put on the character of Christ in front of other people who need him. Every time you go to work, you're working for a different master. You're working for someone else's glory, not just your corporate culture or your CEO or your company, but you're working for the glory of Jesus. Listen, no Christian has a secular job. No Christian has a secular job. I guess like unless you're an assassin or opening casinos or something, but if if you're doing something that helps people no matter what it is, you ultimately are doing it for Jesus. It's a Christian job. It's a spiritual job, just as spiritual as my job is. Because you have another master, another Lord. Now, it's not only the slaves that he addresses, but at the other end of the spectrum, it's the masters. Uh, The instruction doesn't stop with the servants. Paul has something to say to the masters as well, and it's this. You are not the real master. Listen, think about it this way. If your job is primarily about meeting the demands of other people, then know this, your work can be done for the Lord no matter how much it's ignored in this life. If your job is, has a lot more status and it involves managing other people, then know this, it will never overshadow your inheritance, what you have in Christ. And also, it will never overshadow the fact that at the end of the day, you're not the real master. If you feel like you're a slave, hey, take heart, Jesus is your master. And if your job gives you your identity and a lot of self-importance, hey, just remember, be careful, Jesus is your master. The lordship of Jesus invades our personal space. And while it may be comfortable for Paul to only address how we treat each other in church, Jesus is not content with doing half a remodel on your soul. He wants the key to every room. He wants to change everything about you that sin has twisted and destroyed. And one of the things he wants to change about you is the relationships in your home. Your marriage, your parenting, your vocation. These are all ways for us to live out the new character that we have in Christ. So, if you know Jesus, here's what this text tells you. Cooperate with your husbands because you're in Jesus. Love your wives without bitterness because you're in Jesus. If you're a kid, obey your parents because you're in Jesus. Don't provoke your kids to anger because you're in Jesus. Work hard for your boss because you are in Jesus. And treat those that work for you well because you are in Jesus. The Christ-centered life must be lived out particularly in our homes. Now, here's my challenge for you tonight. I want you to think about the, the various things that we've addressed. What is the Holy Spirit pressing in the most on? What is this relationship in your life that is the worst mirror of Jesus' character? What is it that, that God, that, that Christ, doesn't have control over? What relationship in your life is the least centered Around the one that saved you. Whatever that thing is, bring that to Christ. Bring that to Christ. Not in our own strength, but with God's help. Our homes can be centered around Jesus. Jesus can invade our personal space. But at the end of the day, it won't make us uncomfortable, it'll make us transformed. Let's all stand.